Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you, Team Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for joining. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK on those phone lines. Uh, you are seeing, well, before I get into what you're seeing, lots to discuss in the program. I'll give you my uh, analysis of what happened in Boston over the weekend, this this so-called free speech rally and counter rally or counter protesters, tens of thousands of them in Boston. Also an anti-white supremacy rally, uh, white supremacy rally in Dallas that was very interesting in part. You'll have to wait. I'll get to why. Um, and then a lot on Afghanistan in the third hour of the program today, because you have the president of the United States making a an address to the nation on what our policy in Afghanistan as a country will be. We have been at war there for over a decade. We invaded in 2000, well, at the end of 2001 and 2002. And it is it is time for us to do things either differently or to decide that we are not going to do this anymore. Uh, that's a very uh, straightforward and and simple way of saying or or dealing with what is an incredibly complicated problem. Uh, I'll be sharing with you a lot of background and analysis on Afghanistan in advance of the president's speech tonight on that issue, uh, which the country is very much anticipating. I also think you will hear the president addressing perhaps some other issues. North Korea was slated to come up, I think it may, He also may speak about how it's time to come together as a nation and cool down the rhetoric and it's time for tempers to be set aside and return to debates based in in discourse and policy ideas and not uh, accusations of hate and not accusations of racism overshadowing everything else that is being discussed right now in the country because that is where we are. And that's where I wanted to go right now. You, you're you noticing that we have some events coming together that are creating a narrative here. All of a sudden, the Trump administration is being abandoned by corporate allies. The Trump administration has major news networks on TV, uh, has pundits on TV who are saying that Trump is either favorable to white nationalism or is himself in some way uh, a white nationalist. They're calling the president of the United States a racist. You had news publications last week, The Economist, Der Spiegel, um, I think Newsweek as well, putting President Trump on the cover of the magazine with a KKK hood, all in different variations of it. 
And they're calling the president of the United States a clan, a clansman. Some outright others are just insinuating that that's the case. They're they're saying that this is uh, this is the way the country is now going. Others are pushing the story kind of that the president is unfit for office mentally, that he is, in fact, crazy. Here's one of the least informed talking heads over at CNN, Brian Stelter, on just that. President Trump's actions and inactions in the wake of Charlottesville are provoking some uncomfortable conversations, mostly off the air, if we're being honest. People are questioning the president's fitness. But these conversations are happening in newsrooms and TV studios as well. Usually after the microphones are off or after the stories are filed, after the paper's been put to bed, people's concerns and fears and questions come out. Questions that often feel out of bounds, off limits, too hot for TV. Questions like these. Is the president of the United States a racist? Is he suffering from some kind of illness? All right, enough is, is enough. You, you, he's just giving. He's one of the. He's a CNN media reporter, which means he's a guy in the media with no credentials other than being in the media, and he is reporting, quote unquote, on a whisper campaign among journalists who all hate the president, who are willing to believe the president colluded with Russia, sold out his country, committed treason, uh, is hiding criminal activity in his tax returns, you know, uh, has violated any number of, of criminal statutes, is completely ruthless, would do anything, has no moral compass, and is evil. And this is a widely held belief among journalists. And they think the, they think the president is the problem. They believe all that stuff. They think that, that Trump is a racist. Some of them are now coming out and saying it, which anyone who knows this man knows he's not a racist. Is he imprecise with his language? Does he say stuff that I wish he wouldn't sometimes? Sure. But he's not a racist. He's certainly not a member of the KKK. But we almost concede too much by playing defense here. We're doing what they want us to do. We're doing what they expect us to do, and that is to be forced to talk about whether or not the president is racist. There's no winning this conversation. You're automatically on the defensive. But look at what's happening. You had Charlottesville and the media's response to Trump. I should note that the only thing that Trump said that I that I really have a, a very tough time explaining to people or trying to work through is his all good people on both sides i think he was trying to say something other than what he said but that was a problem but the there was violence on both sides was just a statement of fact and the media freaked out about that there was violence on both sides so he said one thing that was imprecise not good and this is a national crisis now they're telling us that major journalists have to have conversations in newsrooms across the country about how, as if we really care what they're saying. We know what they, we know what they think because they've been covering this Russia story. It's a, it is a national embarrassment how much time has been wasted on this Russia collusion crap. It's a national embarrassment. It really is. People say the rest of the world laughs at us because of Trump. The rest of the world should be laughing. And the people who say that, by the way, are the same that go for the Russia narrative. The rest of the world should be laughing 
at how we have this incredibly sophisticated, multi-billion dollar news media that are either completely naive and capable of being swindled by each other or are just wildly dishonest and will pursue an agenda at all costs of progressive statism, no matter what it does to the country, no matter what it does to uh, morality, our economy, our history, the founding. And you're seeing these pieces come together now. They're saying Trump is a racist. They're saying his supporters are racist. You've got Howard Dean out there saying the following. This has now become a referendum. If you want to vote for a racist in the White House, then you better vote for Republicans. So I think this may be the moment that turns uh, America away from the Republican Party, which, frankly, long before Donald Trump was dog dog whistling race, gay rights, immigrants and Muslims. President Trump came into office more pro-gay, more pro-LGBTQ than President Obama did. Fact. But media just will pretend that that's not the case. President Trump came into office. And and whether you agree with President Trump's position on that or not is irrelevant. Just goes to show you that the media is dishonest on this stuff. But what you just heard there from, what is it, the DNC's Howard Dean, former DNC chairman, is he still, I don't know. Yeah, former DNC chairman Howard Dean. Former presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. Ah, that guy, Howard Dean. Remember that? What you are seeing and hearing is really the, the center, uh, really the, the dark core, the, uh, the soft under, well, soft underbelly would be a vulnerability, but the, 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 the center of the sewer, that is hashtag resistance. And it's just all about convince enough Americans. You're not going to convince some of them because uh, a lot of us are sick of all the talk about everything is racist. This is racist. That is racist. Doesn't matter. But frighten people and push people, bully people into, well, I don't want people to think I'm racist, so clearly I can't vote for Trump. Hashtag resistance is just this. It's identity politics on steroids. It's accusations of racism that are supposed to taint not just the president, but anybody who would ever support Donald Trump and even the Republican Party. This is the resistance now, and it is coordinated. Uh, We really think that it's it's a, a shock. It, it comes out of nowhere that you have people uh, pushing this story in the media about how Trump is racist. And then you also have all this. They have to tear down the monuments. They've already moved on beyond just Confederate monuments, I should note. They're, they wanted, they've uh, want to get rid of Christopher Columbus now because he's a racist and genocide. And you know they, they want to get rid of any number of... These uh, these different statues. You had you had uh, Jay Johnson from the Obama administration, former DHS secretary, said that the removal of these statues is a matter of public safety. What alarms so many of us from a security perspective is that so many of the statues, the Confederate uh, monuments are now modern day becoming symbols and rallying points for white nationalism for neo-Nazis, for the KKK. I salute those in cities and states who are taking down a lot of these monuments for reasons of public safety and and security. And that's not a matter of political correctness. That's a matter of public safety and homeland security. 
until this Charlottesville fiasco, I hadn't even I hadn't even heard of an alt right rally involving anybody from the Confederacy at all. I hadn't even heard of one happening. This idea that these statues are somehow a a centerpiece of alt right I, I don't know what it comes from. Well, it comes from a manufactured narrative in the media. The the alt right you saw them on display in Charlottesville. The alt right is uh, a group of as Steve. I got to say, Banning got it right. They're just a bunch of losers. They're just a bunch of losers. They have no power. They have no authority. Nobody respects them. Nobody likes them. They're, a lot of them are you know, losing their jobs now, and they're being completely shunned. But there is something working here. There's something behind the scenes. There is a coordinated campaign. This is, this is hashtag resistance. Got to bring down the Confederate statues. Got to run endless stories about how Trump is a racist. Lots of talk about about uh, the alt-right and how violence on the right is becoming normalized and we have to stand up against fascism. Who doesn't want to stand up against fascism? Well, of course, fascism's bad. I'll stand up against fascism. Yeah, by fascism, they mean Republicans. That's really what this is. They are rebranding the Republican Party. The left in this country is rebranding the Republican Party as fascists. And that's going to have really severe consequences. That's why you're seeing people say stuff that under any other circumstances would just be completely, utterly career suicide, right? But they think they can get away with it because the moment, well, we're standing up against fascism. And in fact, some of them even do go too far because they break the law. They even threaten the president. Here is Missouri State Senator Maria Chappelle Nadal on her comments about how Trump should be assassinated president trump i apologize to you and your family i made a mistake and i'm owning up to it and i am not ever going to make a mistake like that again and i have learned my lesson my judge and my jury is my lord jesus christ no i don't actually the the jury the jury may be uh, a jury of your peers because you're not allowed to uh, wish for the death of the president, the sitting president of the United States. And just also on a moral level, you shouldn't be wishing for the death of any of your fellow Americans. Never mind the president. This is just terrible. But this is the atmosphere now. Trump is so hated in the left. They've created such a boogeyman, such a monster that rhetoric spirals out of control. You see, they're they're feeding into this. Oh, we need we need to pull down the Confederate statues. Oh, by the way. Texas man has been arrested and charged, this courtesy of NBC, after allegedly trying to plant a bomb on a Confederate statue at a Houston park. This is earlier today. Uh, Andrew Schneck was charged with attempting to maliciously damage or destroy property, receiving federal financial assistance, according to federal prosecutors. This guy's trying to tape a bomb to a Confederate statue? What the heck is wrong with people? Well, I can tell you. They have been brainwashed with hate, not right wing hate, not racist hate. No, they've been brainwashed with the other side is a bunch of hateful racists. They're fascists. And whatever we have to do to oppose them, whatever we have to say, whatever dirty tricks we have to pull, whatever violence they have to engage in. That's where this is heading is justifiable because hashtag resistance. 
Every state gets two statues to put in Statuary Hall or throughout the Capitol, just using Virginia as an example. Virginia obviously chose George Washington, the father of the country, but the second choice that was made in 1909 and has never been changed is Robert E. Lee. I think as you look at the scope of Virginia history here in 2017, and if you want there to be two people to really stand for who Virginia is, why wouldn't you think about Pocahontas, who had she not saved John Smith's life, we wouldn't even be here possibly. Pocahontas. That's Virginia Senator Tim Kaine. Remember Hillary Clinton's vice presidential candidate that I'm sure, and if you don't live in Virginia, a lot of you are like, who? Uh, the guy the, the guy really had, had all the charm of a Siberian prison guard circa 1950. But here we are with a U.S. senator saying that we should really have we should replace Robert E. Lee with with, with Pocahontas? Be, because why? Oh, you know, sounds politically correct, so let's just go with it. Uh, th- this is, oh, by the way, the Jefferson Memorial is now adding uh, references to slavery. I mean, this is not going to... Columbus, uh, the, the Christopher Columbus Monument has been defaced and attacked. You've got uh, explosives tied to a Confederate statue um, of Richard Dowling in a park in Houston. This this is becoming now the new normal. They are they are normalizing the erasing and rewriting of history, and th- that's not an overstatement. Now, right? We we are at that place where that's what is happening. Some of us have been warning that this is what will because, as I said to you originally, well, what are the outer boundaries of this? If it's a person was bad uh, a couple hundred years ago, based on how we expect people to be today, where does that stop? You know who are who are allowed to be our heroes? Who's acceptable? You know, I mean, there were not a lot, not a lot of the founding fathers were big on transgender rights. So, I mean, there's there's going to be some problems here. I know you say right now, but come on, they won't. That's not going to be a standard. You think? No. Just give it some time. Just give it some time. The focus on the statues is not coming from the alt right. The focus on the statues is actually coming from the hard left. They are using this as a means of getting the conversation about racism in the headlines. They are using this to create the kind of political theater that gets attention. And it all traces back to Trump and this White House. That's the purpose here. This is the, I keep saying, the hashtag resistance. This is the the anti-Trump forces have mobilized. They couldn't get him with Russia, at least not yet. They tried, man. They thought that they were going to just create so much pressure that maybe Trump would step down or it was all in on Russia. And then people started to get tired of it. And then there was that meeting in Trump Tower. And I think the media was holding out that that meeting because they knew about it for months and months and months. They thought that was really going to do it, that Trump supporters would leave him and that would be the end of it. Nope, that didn't do it. So now where are we? Well, it's really just a repeat of what we were hearing during the campaign. Trump is a racist. Trump is a fascist. Trump is a is a sexist. He's a xenophobe. I mean, do we ever get to have a discussion about Obamacare and the economy and you know, the things that Americans care about in their day-to-day? No, we just get to sit and bicker on the left's terms about racism. That's what this is all about, and it is coordinated. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. You are now entering the 
Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Well, the final terrorist from the Barcelona attacks has been taken out. That's the update from today on a series of terrorist strikes in Spain that killed over a dozen people, wounded scores more. And now we can finally connect the pieces here entirely and also get a sense of the background and the possible radicalization path of these individuals. You had almost a dozen people involved in these attacks in Spain. We were talking about last week on this show uh, the possibility of VBIEDs, and now we know that that is in fact what authorities suspect the plan was all along. Uh, But before I get into that, let me just update you on who was taken out today. Police shot and killed 22-year-old Moroccan Yunus Abu Yaqub. He had been the last suspected terrorist uh, that had evaded authorities. It is believed that he was the van driver in Barcelona who killed uh, 13 people. So this this 12-person terror cell uh, is one of the largest we have seen operating in uh, Europe in months. And this is the biggest terror attack that has hit Spain since the 2004 Madrid train bombings. Now, here are some of the key facts just to go over everything so we know exactly uh, what the context is as we get into the radicalization and counter counter radicalization and counterterrorism pathways and possible solutions here. Okay, you have the Alcanar house bombing. And that was an own goal in bomb terminology, meaning that there was an individual. It is believed, in fact, a radical imam may have been present for that house bombing. And it was an accident. They were trying to put together TATP, triacetone, triperoxide, with a series of canisters They were squatting this terror cell of young people, by the way. They were in their early 20s for the most part, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. They were squatting in a house in Alcanar. And over a series of many months, they were building uh, the capacity to create massive VBIEDs, vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices. What happened is that they didn't have the expertise to handle the TATP. TATP is an explosive that was used in the Manchester suicide bombing of the Ariana Grande concert. TATP was used in the suicide bomber attack in Paris, France, that involved the Stade de France and the horrific massacre at the Bataclan Theater at the hands of jihadists and also the major terror cell in Brussels, uh, which is what finally got the international community to take a look at the Molenbeek neighborhood uh, in Brussels, which had become a hotbed of radicalization. So TATP in Brussels, in Paris, in Manchester, and now found in the ruins of the Alcanar house. This terrorist uh, safe house, which is where they were preparing these explosives, uh, went up. It completely disintegrated, annihilated this house. 
because of the TATP, which is difficult to handle. It's very unstable. It's much more powerful, though, than ammonium nitrate, which is a more stable bomb that has been used in other major terror strikes. This time they were trying to use TATP and also uh, gas canisters to uh, to um, grow the explosive effect. So the house went up in Alcanar, but these guys were not there. So they then decided that the vehicles that they had rented, and they initially tried to rent one massive truck. They were going to build an enormous truck bomb, and one can assume park it somewhere in Barcelona. Uh, they were building that they wanted to get an enormous truck. They got two smaller vans instead because they didn't have the permit to drive the truck. They had these vans. Once the Alcanar house exploded, they went to Barcelona and they ran down people in uh, on Las Ramblas. At least a number of the individuals involved here went to Barcelona and then they escaped. Uh, Abu Yakub, who was shot down today, obviously escaped and uh, they tried a similar vehicle attack in Cambrils. They strapped themselves with fake suicide vests. I should note that if they had mastered TATP, the explosive, I believe they would have all had real suicide vests on. And the only reason they went with the fake suicide vests is because they lacked the technical know-how here to pull off an attack involving explosives. Uh, But the Cambrils attack killed one and then a police officer, a Spanish police officer, by the way. I mean, this guy... Whatever the police in Spain uh, equivalent of, like the police officer, you know, Mer- uh, Medal of Merit or whatever it is, this guy obviously needs to needs to be awarded this because he took out these five terrorists single handedly. And then today, uh, there were reports of an individual driving a vehicle across a vineyard. There were his helicopters chasing him, and sure enough, it was Abu Yakub and police shot him dead in the Cambrils attack one woman was killed a few other injured but it was nowhere near as bad a casualty count as what we saw in Barcelona so you have a house explosion and you have a dozen person terrorist cell all young Moroccan born living in Spain Uh, you have a house explosion in Alcanar where they were preparing the explosives that was the night before and then they made uh, then they made their move to go to Barcelona you have the vehicle attacks in Barcelona, and then follow-on vehicle attack in Cambrils. And then today you had a shootout, or at least a shoot-down, of uh, Abu y- Yunus Abu Yakub, who was the driver in the Barcelona vehicle attack. So this seems to have come to an end. This cell is broken up now, and all the individuals are either in custody, a number of them are in custody, or uh, have been killed by police. But this has clearly rocked Spain, that you could have a cell of this size. As of yet, uh, no direct connections established to the Islamic State. But the Islamic State, through its Amak news agency, has claimed credit for this attack. Now, that could just be that it was an inspired ISIS attack and that these individuals found a way to connect with someone online who was involved with the Islamic State, who was a member of the Islamic State, and that they pledged uh, bayah, that they they pledged their fealty to the Islamic State before the attack, which would, in jihadist circles, technically speaking, make them Islamic State fighters uh, or acting on behalf of the Islamic State here. Uh, We know that there are reports of a preacher. It's thought, actually, that the preacher may be the human remains in the house in Alcanar, 
the preacher may have radicalized these individuals because none of the cell, as of yet, have been reported to be uh, particularly active in terms of radical associations with jihadist terrorists on social media. So we haven't yet seen some of the telltale signs we would expect in this process, although as we read more about associates of these individuals that are uh, reported in the press, some of them withdrew, became much more religious. You know, you see in the New York Times and these other places, and the New York Times, I should note, ended a piece just yesterday that I read with how sad the terrorist families were, you know, how the emotional scars won't heal for the terrorists' families. How about the families of the dead in Cambrils and Barcelona uh, and the wounded? The New York Times focus on the terrorist families. It just goes to show you that they're they're always looking to try and find an alternative angle here. Whenever you're talking about jihadist terrorism, that deflects from the rage that we should feel at incidents like this. The anger that we are righteous in summoning when we are condemning this kind of jihadist terrorist atrocity. Uh, a very important uh, point that will I'm sure will get lost in all of the coverage of this, because there won't, that most of the media won't want to focus on this, is that these were uh, individuals who had, based on the reporting we've seen, all assimilated quite well. They smoked, they liked to party, they liked to play sports, they watched TV, they played video games. And so the usual narrative that the leftist jihad apologists come up with, and this happened, as I mentioned to you, when I was speaking on a panel at CNN, everyone else on that panel was saying that the Nice attack in south of France was the result of poor assimilation. Okay, in this case, you have all these young people living in Spain who are uh, enjoying life, uh, have access to all the things that one would need in a civilized Western country like Spain, a beautiful country I've always wanted to visit. It's a wonderful place, and they're enjoying their lives. They're young. They've got girlfriends. They're watching, you know, TV like everybody else. They're 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 a part of Spanish society, and everyone thinks everything is normal. And then all of a sudden, they decide to become a bunch of savages who are murdering people. I mean, they killed a seven-year-old in Barcelona. They ran over a seven-year-old. They ran over everybody they could. But one of the dead is a little seven-year-old. What kind of savages, what kind of barbarians run down a kid, crush a kid under a vehicle? Because what? Because this is for the caliphate? Because of the violence in the Middle East? If it wasn't for America, you know, there'd actually be a lot more violence in the Middle East. I hate to, hate to be the one to break that to people, but they would be attacking and killing each other in Syria and in Iraq and elsewhere, whether we had ever set foot in the region or not. Just look at a little bit of the history, and I'm right, and you know I'm right, but the left just makes all these excuses. It's pathetic. But back to the whole assimilation jihadism discussion here. These young men who turned into monsters in Spain were in a wonderful society, a wonderful country, and they turned on their, uh, they turned on their Spanish brothers and sisters. They were born in Morocco, but they had been living in Spain for a number of years. How could anyone do this? Why would anyone do this? 
The answer is not poverty or lack of opportunity or assimilation problems or Islamophobia or any of the other stuff that will be offered up by the whiny, dissembling, excuse-making left when it comes to Muslim-based terrorism, which is what jihadism is. It is from within the Islamic faith. Whenever they want to make excuses, they find some way, or at least they'll cover it up and say, we'll talk more about this later. But here we have a very interesting case study. These young men were integrated into Spanish society well, by all accounts. They had plenty of opportunity. Spain's youth unemployment is almost 50%. You'll notice there are no non-Moroccan Muslims in this group of 12 that are running people over and trying to blow people up, men, women, and children. That's because this is ideological. That's because within the Islamic faith, there is a percentage, there is a minority, but it is large enough to destabilize the world and to threaten, if we do not confront it, if we do not name it, to threaten Western civilization itself. There is a minority within the Islamic faith that is at war with us constantly and always. And our only choice for dealing with them is vigilance and eradication. Vigilance against their terrorist attacks and eradicating the terrorists as we can on foreign battlefields or taking them off the battlefield at home, prosecuting them to the full extent of the law, in some cases, death penalty cases. But that's what we have to do. That is all we can do. Because otherwise, we are already surrendering. Otherwise, the battle is already over. We just don't know it yet. And here we see a story where the only basis you could come up with for individuals to do this is that they had been uh, brainwashed by an ideology that they had embraced of Islamic jihad and jihadism and Islamism and that... uh, version of Islamic theology is present in many countries around the world. Many tens of millions of people believe it, and it's going to continue to be the great struggle of our time. And it's not about assimilation, and it's not about Islamophobia, and Spain proves it. It's so frustrating to see so much of the idiot commentary on this. People who have never worked a counterterrorism case, know any of the history, know any of this. It's very, very frustrating. Just a quick update, team, on the other terror attack that happened last week that didn't get nearly as much attention as it would have otherwise because of what had gone on in Spain. Here's an update from the BBC. Moroccan suspect named over Finland stabbings in Turku. Uh, A suspect held in Finland over a knife attack that killed two people has been named as 18-year-old Moroccan asylum seeker Abderrahman Mekhash. or Meshka, sorry. Uh, police shot him in the leg and he is in hospital, but he is expected to appear in court via a video link. Uh, the man appeared to choose women as targets, according to police. It's being treated as terrorism. Two Finnish women were stabbed to death. Eight other people were injured. Uh, the injured included a British paramedic, a Swede, and an Italian. There were six women who were injured as well in this Uh, This is a horrific incident, Uh, and this is somebody who was seeking this suspect, another Moroccan involved in terrorism, I should note. Now, look, I've met many Moroccans, and there are loads of great people. It's a country of 35 million people. Uh, 
But again, if we're looking at the ideology of Islam broadly and where we have to worry about terrorism coming from, it comes from mostly from within the Islamic community on a global scale. This is just a fact. Uh, people like to fight this and feel like they're being righteous for some reason, but n I'm not saying, and no one who knows anything says that every Muslim is a terrorist or that everybody who believes in Islam is involved with or supportive of terrorism, but I am saying that there is a disproportionate percentage, that there is a large, relatively speaking, piece of the terrorism pie that involves Islamic extremists. And I know you already know this, but it just has to be repeated so that we can maintain some sanity as we talk about these issues. But you had Moroccans involved in terrorism in Spain last week. You have this guy involved in terrorism in Finland. Let me just say a couple things about this. Uh, one is that this was obviously terrorism from the start, and the Finnish authorities were slow rolling it. And two, notice how he goes after women. Repression of women in Islamic societies is one of the most corrosive and destructive aspects of traditional fundamentalist Islam. And it breaks out onto the world stage in these incidents, and all of a sudden people say, wait a second, there is some true misogyny, real hatred of women that is a vast problem within Islam, not just for terrorist incidents or just jihadists, but within the Muslim world. It is the mother load of regression on women's rights, you could say. Again, people don't want to talk about it, but it's just true. We'll go into a break here, talk about free speech in just a few. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Number one, we didn't want what happened in, um, you know, in Virginia to happen here. We didn't want them at each other's throat. You know, also, there was a lot of talk in the week leading up about bottles being thrown with urine at our offices. And I wanted to make sure that they, you know, that you had to have a good arm to basically throw and get at them. So, you know, we basically wanted them separated. And uh, I'm sorry to report, we did have some bottles thrown at our offices that did have urine in it. Um, a couple of our officers were hit with that. They were hit with a lot of stuff today, and I'm very proud of the job they did, and it goes to the professionalism of this department. Ah, yes. Protesters throwing bottles of urine at police officers up in Boston over the weekend. It's not specified in the media, but of course we can all just guess, and we would be right, that those who were throwing bodily fluids at police officers who were there to protect everyone and do their duty in the city of Boston, uh, that that was coming from the left. Those were the counter protesters. Buck Sexton back with you all now, team. Uh, I saw the protests over the weekend. In fact, uh, I mean, I watched them. I wasn't there present for them. I was uh, in Fox News for uh, a little bit looking at some of the live feeds, some of, of what had happened there. And you had tens of thousands of counter protesters and a few dozen right wing protesters who are having a, quote, free speech rally. I always find it fascinating that there's so little information, so little reliable information on just what this, quote, free speech rally really was or who these people were. Uh, I, I didn't see any people walking around with swastikas. I didn't see anything 
that looked like it had anything to do with Nazism. Again, I don't know. I, I just saw what I saw on the video feeds of the event. Uh, but I certainly saw... And so I just think it's interesting that y- you don't get much background information on any of that. You don't get the opportunity to say, okay, are, is this really a free speech rally or is this a an effort to cause trouble for the, you know, the alt-right trying to get together and have a big event that will draw attention and perhaps even a situation where there's likely to be violence. I don't know. I did, however, see Antifa protesters or at least members of what's called the Black Bloc. Now, I'm familiar with these guys from years ago when they were a part of the Occupy Wall Street protest movement And all of the groups that you see that you've seen in recent years, including Antifa, including Occupy Wall Street there and and the black bloc within it, uh, they the seeds of these groups were planted years ago. Uh, This is not new. The anarchists that were part of Occupy Wall Street were just as crazy. They were Antifa without Trump. That's all that's all that the difference is here. Uh, They ran around and destroyed things. They wore all black. Black block is a tactic, as I've told you in the past, and it's specifically done so that it's difficult to identify uh, perpetrators. So it's a means of facilitating mob destructive behavior and mob violence without being caught. And it also creates a perception of a paramilitary protest organization. That's what the Black Bloc is really trying to do, trying to seem like they are true modern day revolutionaries and anarchists. I saw some of them at the uh, at the protest in, on Boston Common over the weekend. And of course, you have all the fighting back and forth between the left and right in this country, Democrats and Republicans, as to whether or which side has more crazies, essentially. And I, I think it should be noted that Black Bloc shows up in every city across the country. Uh, they've been a part of protest movements for years, and they are not disavowed by the left. The, the left will have these, ta- these talks about their tactics and say whether they're helpful or not, whether they cause more problems than they're worth, but they don't completely disavow the Black Bloc. Uh, you don't see people, all you have to do is look at these protests. You don't see people telling those who show up to a speech protest wearing black head to toe uh, their own side, so to speak, the counter free speech protesters, whatever that means. They're not saying, hey, what are you idiots doing here all dressed in black wearing masks? Uh, and in the case of Boston, they weren't allowed to carry weapons. Very smart by the Boston police. Boston police like the NYPD, has the resources and the training to really handle large protest movements. Charlottesville doesn't. This is a huge differentiator, by the way. Didn't get nearly enough attention in the initial discussions of just went wrong there. Uh, It was clear that if the Charlottesville police had had more personnel, more training, and most importantly, the will to act early, Uh, which is a combination, I think, their hesitancy was a combination of a political concern about seeming too aggressive with the counter uh, right-wing protesters uh, and also just not really knowing what they were doing. In Boston, the cops knew what they were doing, but you had this Antifa movement there, or you you had these black bloc individuals 
who are now associated with Antifa, and they're present for this, and they're not being told to disperse by their own side. They're not. So, you know, in the same way that people have pointed out, and I think understandably and correctly, you don't get to march next to a guy holding up a swastika or you don't get to stand uh, beside a neo-Nazi. And you're saying, I believe in, uh, I don't know, you know, secure borders. And the neo-Nazi saying, you know, I hate people of this race or, you know, blood and soil or some other really horrifying thing. That that's a problem for you. If you, if you're the non blood and soil guy, you don't get to just stand there and be okay with it. I think it's interesting that the left always gives a pass to the antifa people there, and also there no there's no expectation that the that the black block antifa groups within, uh, who by the way we're throwing bottles of urine at police in Boston. Okay, let's just put that out there. It's not like they sit there and they're just dressed like these little street combatants and they don't do anything. Throwing bottles of urine at cops. Some of them were arrested. But there's no expectation that the Antifa black bloc protesters are going to be booted out by their own side or called out by their own side, which starts to make it feel like in these leftist counter-fascism protests or counter-free speech protests or, or whatever they are. I mean, there's a lot of different stuff going on across the country. Are we talking about on campus? Are we talking about uh, what's just happening now in some of these cities? But it seems to me more like Antifa is the vanguard of the left. They're the shock troops. But there's a difference between fringe extremists and shock troops, and I think that that's where you see the left having some real problems here with their line of argument, which is, oh, we're not extreme. The right is extreme. Oh, well, you don't denounce the extremists in your own midst. And to say that somebody who will throw a bottle of urine, which was confirmed by Boston police, to say that somebody would throw a bottle of urine at a police officer, and that is in any way, in any uh, way, shape, or form acceptable to anyone is just appalling. I mean, first of all, that, that's a cop. They're there to provide safety and order for everybody. Uh, the Boston police did a really professional and admirable job on Saturday from everything that I've seen, just as, by the way, the NYPD did dealing with the Occupy Wall Street movement. But you know, whether it's a male or a female cop, no, that's somebody's dad. That's somebody's mom. These little Antifa punks are throwing uh, urine at them. You know, where do we draw the line? Are they allowed to, are Antifa punks because they're so anti-Trump, are they allowed to throw feces at police officers? You know, wh why is that not m more uh, highlighted in all of, well, we know the answer, of course, because the left believes that they're not responsible for any violence or any problems. Why uh, do we not hear more stories about this and also the condemnation from within the left? Are, are they anti-cop or not? I think they should be forced to answer that question. Is Antifa anti-cop? I've got other audio of them yelling uh, cops and clan, cops and clan again. This was in Dallas. This was in Seattle. They chant cops and clan. Now, if we're going to talk about triggering and aggressions that are speech-based against people, do we get to ever stop and think about 
first of all, how offensive it is to all cops of any race, creed, or color for protesters. And not just offensive, but completely unfair and, and insane to say that. But there are black police officers in Dallas. There are black police officers in Seattle, black police officers in every major PD in the country. In places like New York is actually a very diverse police department. I know because I work for the NYPD. You got little punk protesters yelling at those cops who are standing there defending all of us, all of them, but African-American officers as well. Cops and Klan? That's... In what universe are we supposed to just overlook that and act like it's not a big deal? Well... You and I won't, but the left certainly does. Are you seeing a lot of stories about that? I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine what the response would be if you had any kind of alt-right group that was threatening police officers, throwing human waste at them, and chanting vile and offensive stuff to cops? I mean, it's all you'd hear about, as, as you should. But yet, when it's on the other side, when it's the left doing this stuff, you have this gap. All of a sudden, there's so much less interest. There's so much less discussion out there. The editorial decisions in the various newsrooms and websites and TV channels are skewed away from what would be, if nothing else, interesting television people would like to see. Audio, I think, of protesters screaming cops and Klan. People would like to hear the Boston mayor saying that, sure enough, there was, or Boston police commissioner, rather, saying there was urine thrown at at officers. Not by the alt-right. Not that there's anything good about the alt-right. But by the left, by the counter-protesters. We should know the truth. That's what I'm here to tell you. But they're rejecting reality on the other side when it comes to the violence on their own side. Let's talk about the left's argument uh, when it, with regard to violence and protest. That's audio from the Dallas uh, anti-white supremacy rally that happened over the weekend. So you had this uh, this rally in Boston against hate, which was originally a free speech rally, but there are only uh, dozens or hundreds of, quote, free speech people who I have read have completely distanced themselves from any alt-right or uh, they've publicly said that I don't know enough about the group. Very hard, as I said, to find information on it. Uh, but in Dallas, they had a another rally, and this was an anti-white supremacy rally, the Dallas, Dallas against white supremacy, and you had a few thousand people gather near City Hall, and they were holding up signs like, white supremacy is not welcome in our city, uh, and they also had Donald Trump with the word racist uh, crossed out on his chest, and an, eff- an effigy of Donald Trump, I should say, with the word racist crossed out on his chest. So I, you know, this is, okay, this is what you can expect, I suppose, from the left. But chanting cops and Klan hand in hand is just a slur. And that there were protesters who did this in Dallas. They've also done it in Seattle recently. This has become a leftist protest chant that's catching on across the country. 
tells us a lot, I think, about what the real uh, motives and, and motivations behind some of these movements are. Uh, they are not about police reform. They are, in fact, anti-police. Because to in any way infer, and they're not inferring, they're just outright stating that the police department of a city like Dallas, that I should just also note, suffered a mass assassination of police officers uh, just, uh, what, over a year ago at the hands of a Black Lives Matter devotee that you'd have protesters chanting cops and Klan hand in hand is completely unacceptable. But there will be no calls to denounce this. You won't have people asking Nancy Pelosi, what did you think of that, you know, Miss Pelosi, you know, Congresswoman Pelosi? What do you think about people chanting that the police are hand in hand with the vile Ku Klux Klan, which, by the way, a Democrat entity. Uh, this is now just forgotten in our history. Robert Byrd, famous U.S. senator, revered in the Democratic Party, grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. I, I just segregationists, Democrats, you look at the the history of true legal racism, meaning legalized racism in the South. It's all Democrats. Uh, it's all the Democrats doing this. And yet now we are led to believe that they're the, the great defenders of minority groups, and minority rights. So that you had this over the weekend in Dallas. And, and I also so remember Antifa protesters throwing urine at cops in Boston, Dallas anti-white supremacy protesters chanting cops and Klan. And oh, also, we're wearing gas. Some of them were wearing gas masks. They threw rocks at the police. So they were assaulting cops, too. Assaulting cops is what leftist protest movements do. This happens. Um, but then you had this piece that I just found. I found it fascinating. I think it's really an, an instance of what could be highbrow trolling. The Washington Post published the same weekend that all this is going on, quote, why the American left gave up on political violence and why the right increasingly embraced it. It's by a professor at uh, Tel Aviv University. And it just makes this case that the left doesn't engage in political violence. The, the, the right, it, it, because it's not effective and because of, I mean, the argument is nonsensical. I read it through it a few times. He has to admit, because of the long history of leftist violence, including labor union violence, including presidential assassins who were leftists. I mean, you just the, the left has been uh, the self-styled revolutionaries of American politics for as long as there's been in America. Right. I mean, the, the left is uh, soaked in violence. And I just mentioned to you the history of racist violence within the left. But and within two months Two months ago, we had an attempted mass assassination. Somebody opened fire on members of Congress, almost killed a number of them, uh, hit three people, almost killed Representative Steve Scalise, and he's a Bernie Sanders supporter. And to say that people on the left aren't violent is just to deny, uh, it's just to deny reality. It's to pretend that people don't have access to Google and, and are unable to figure out the most basic, uh, the most basic facts of what's really happening. Um, he, he, it's interesting. He also says, and this is one part of the argument that I thought was particularly egregiously stupid, says that, well, the left has given up violence because the left is now dominated by uh, by minority groups who have been oppressed and who have felt the sting of violence and and uh, and discrimination themselves, which 
putting that aside for a second, it, the left is led still primarily by many uh, white progressives who, in fact, use those oppressed groups for their own purposes. Uh, but there are plenty of people on the left who are white, who have never faced any oppression, and who have increasingly not just turned to radical politics, but also have tried to turn the government into an instrument of forcing their political ideology on other people. So as we look at what's really happening and the violence that's occurring, the political violence in this country, uh, look at the protest movements. And of course, protest in general tends to be a more left-wing pastime than right. We don't like to just gather as a mob and scream and shout. Uh, it's not a conservative approach to, to life. But when you see what's really going on with the way that they are trying to just rewrite the history in front of our eyes, including recent history, and pretend that the right is really where the violence is and the left uh, has mostly clean hands now when it comes to the street battles over political ideology. It's just nonsense. But the Washington Post will publish it. No surprise there. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Buck Sexton back with you all now. Team, I had mentioned that I would love to get somebody on who was at the uh, protest. And we've got somebody, as it turns out. We've got Dominic Green joining us now. He's a contributor to the Weekly Standard, and he was at these Boston protests. Dominic, good to have you on, sir. Thank you very much. All right, let's start with it. What did you see? Bring us into this. Well, I saw a very small number of uh, people from the Boston Free Speech Coalition, as they call themselves, on a bandstand with a very large number of police around them and an even larger number of counter-demonstration protesters. And in that crowd of counter-demonstration people, there was um, a few uh, supporters of the uh, Free Speech Coalition. Who are the Free Speech Coalition? Because the way that this was set up for the casual viewer over the weekend, I happened, I was in uh, Fox News talking about terror in Spain and the Barcelona attacks, and then all of a sudden we were switching over to look at what's going on in Boston. I'm like, wait a second, who, who is this Free Speech Coalition? Are, are, are they alt-right, or what are they? Who are they? I would describe them as, as people who seem to have grown up uh, with the alt-right in the atmosphere around them. They seem to be a group of local uh, college students. Um, from my research that I did after uh, attending the, the demonstrations, um, they seem to be new to it, and they seem to have got quite out of their depth quite quickly. So this was not, so, that, so everyone's clear listening, though, this was not Charlottesville in terms of uh, a group of uh, a few dozen or a few hundred or whatever it is, marching with Nazi insignias, uh, marching with swastikas, marching and yelling Sig Heil and blood and soil. These are a bunch of college kids who are free speech activists. Um, there was certainly nothing to indicate any uh, visible presence of any uh, Nazi sympathizers. Uh, the local uh, clan did say that they uh, would be attending, uh, but they were not visible if any of them did turn up. Um, some of the associations that the Boston Free Speech Coalition people have um, veer, I would say, uh, towards the, the political extremes, but it's very hard to establish exactly what they think. They haven't really put out a clear statement, and once people did start to associate them with what had happened in Charlottesville, they were very quick to try and get out of it. Yeah, how, how, did, they, how did this come about? So you've got a, a bunch, you said college, these are college-age kids, right? So you've got a bunch of young people that see the thing in Charlottesville, and now 
they just want to take a stand for free speech, but then it became at least portrayed by many on the left as in some way being in solidarity with the reactionary right in Charlottesville, right? I mean, that, that seemed to be at least the way that it was set up going into the weekend, but I'm getting the sense that that's not, I mean, the, the notion that there was any tie-in to the messages in Charlottesville is not supported by the facts. Um, no, the, 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 the message certainly that the, uh, the racists and, and uh, fascist groups had in Charlottesville, not at all, but there were speakers who, who have um, connections, uh, who were originally booked to be in Boston, who do have connections to some of the organizers of the event in Charlottesville. So there seems to be an, a very hazy, indirect relationship. Now, how was it that you had, I saw as many as 40,000 counter-protesters show up? I mean, this happened, if this was an event that was put together somewhat quickly, was it just the, the spreading like wildfire on social media and people wanted to show up and what? Stand against fat? What did the counter-protesters think they were protesting against when you tell me that these guys are part of the little free speech coalition? Well, there were two uh, main elements to the protest. Um, one of them was people who had come out, I think, uh, to show their revulsion at what had happened in Charlottesville and were directing that towards the next best available thing, which was the Free Speech Coalition's very unclear uh, rally. And the other, uh, about half of the demonstrators came from a Black Lives Matter march, uh, which marched from the uh, from south of Boston Common and joined up uh, with the main protest. Now, we have some audio here of Boston Antifa. Boston belongs to us. Boston belongs to us. Turn the fascists into dust. Because Boston belongs to us. Okay, I mean, well, I'm not going to comment on the artistry here or lack thereof, but uh, they also were yelling, F your free speech. Uh, there's some nasty stuff thrown out there, too. They think they're standing against fascism. The kids that are the free speech people are not fascist, but I did see, or at least as far as we know, not fascist, uh, I did see some black bloc protesters there. So Antifa was present at there this protest. There was a number of people who were there most definitely to prevent the Free Speech Coalition from exercising uh, their right uh, to be offensive. Um, they did not, I would say, constitute a, uh, anything like a significant minority, even within the protesters. Um, but they were most definitely there, and the only moments of which things looked like they could have got out of control were when the Antifa group tried to block, uh, you know, people wearing Trump uh, insignia or supporters of the Free Speech Coalition who were looking to create a, a, a drama by moving into the crowd with a police escort and so on. Um, so there were these flashpoints, but by and large, most of the people were there, as I said, to demonstrate um, their absolute uh, disapproval of what had taken place in Charlottesville. Uh, tell me a bit, though, about this exchange. that ha- I actually saw it when it when it, when it happened, because uh, it was being live-streamed. This woman, by the way, we're speaking to Dominic Green, who's a contributor to the Weekly Standard. He was at the Boston protests over the weekend, which had tens of thousands of people. And his latest on weeklystandard.com is, in Boston, everybody won and nobody died. So that's a good thing. Uh, but tell me a bit, Dominic, about uh, this moment where a woman was grabbed or they grabbed the American flag out of her hands and dragged her on the ground. This got a lot of attention. 
Yes, it's hard to know um, the, the big picture around it. She was uh, holding a flag as the Antifa group went past. It's not clear what she said. One of them doubled back and seems to have pushed or hit her. And then there's a scuffle. And then the next thing she falls onto the ground. Um, it's typical of the kind of confusion that occurs at these events. There are people who come to antagonize each other. And... Um, you know, these things can spin out very quickly. There were also cases which I did see of people trying to calm things as well. Um, there, were in, there were also people in the crowd shouting at the Antifa people not, you know, to be so confrontational and aggressive. Oh, that's good, because usually I've, I, when I've seen Black Bloc, which is what everyone's calling Antifa now, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of similarities. They usually just are able to operate within these protest within peaceful, otherwise peaceful protest movements without a lot of uh, pushback from from those who are just there to make their point and hold up their placard. So you're telling me that that happened. That's good. Uh, did you see any of the projectiles, including the bottles of urine that were thrown at police officers? Any of that, or did that come later on? I, I was um, on my way home, I think. That was at the very end. Things broke up, and, and as often happens with big demonstrations, the people who really want to stay behind and fight the police stay behind. Um, I did see bottles of water being thrown at uh, supporters of the Free Speech Coalition, being thrown from the counter-protest, and lots of those um, ended up hitting the police who you know, were in the thick of it and uh, having a hard time. So, But all, all in all, I have to say this was a pretty... Uh, pretty mellow as far as what we've seen in recent weeks goes. I mean, I think you could even argue that some of the protests that have happened in Seattle, Dallas, and elsewhere uh, were more confrontational, more dangerous, more violent than what we saw on Boston Common. How much of this do you think is attributable, uh, attributable, Dominic, to Boston uh, BPD and their tactics and their community relations? A lot of it, I, I do believe that was a major factor. They're used to having big crowds and they're used to trying to keep things friendly. I think a crucial factor also is that only one side turned up in large numbers. Uh, there was only a few dozen people from the Free Speech Coalition and maybe a few dozen more of their supporters. There wasn't a situation where large numbers of people turned up and say, as in Charlottesville, were given the run of the town, and, and then things very quickly were out of control. It seems to me that the counter-protesters were actually the protest. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Way, yeah. It, it yeah. seems to me the real demonstration were the counter-demonstrators here. They were certainly the, the most dangerous element in the whole thing, in that they were um, seeking to push things towards uh, a crisis. No, but, but I mean, even like those who were there to, at some level, oppose the, quote, free speech coalition were, were in such greater numbers and so much more prominence on Boston Common that to call them counter-protesters seems to be understating. This was really a gathering of people that are trying to oppose Trump and fascism in their own way, right? And there have Happen to be a few free speech people in the mix, but really they were wildly outnumbered. Now, I, I think there's a lot to be said uh, for that. I think, and, and this is Boston after all, you're never going to have trouble gathering a large crowd of people to turn out against either uh, fascist groups or President Trump. <laughs> Um, it had the feeling for me almost of a rehearsal in, in the way that, you know, um, teams uh, do an exhibition game before the season really gets going. It, it felt like the, the actual event was uh, elsewhere. Yes. Dominic, I'm not sure if you're planning on hopping on a plane and going to Phoenix tomorrow, but there is a major political rally planned. Uh, Trump may be pardoning Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He'd be making that announcement in uh, in uh, Phoenix when he's down there. People are saying that this could get out of hand. What are you hearing and what do you think is going to happen? 
Well, to be honest with you, as, as you can tell, I'm an, I'm an immigrant to this country, and I, and I think anything can happen in the current mood. I think uh, the relatively small number of extremists at both ends of the spectrum are alarmingly close to the center of the action. And uh, what happens from here on uh, really is a matter of luck and accident. So you wouldn't be surprised if things got a little out of control down in Phoenix. I mean, I can just imagine they're going to try to shut down highways. Uh, I know the hardline activist tactics that we've seen in the past from the left and the, the instigating another uh, violent exchange with Trump people, similar to what we saw, I think it was in Chicago during the campaign where people were punching each other outside the state. Well, there are a few instances of this. I could see I could see that happening here. I have to say, um, I was amazed that nothing like that uh, really happened on Saturday in Boston, and that was in an unusually uh, peaceable and, as I, and as I said, one-sided uh, meeting. Dominic Green is a contributor to the Weekly Standard. He uh, joined us to talk about his time firsthand at the Boston protests. You can read his latest on weeklystandard.com. In Boston, everybody won and nobody died. Dominic, great to have you on, man. We hope you'll come back. Thanks very much, Buck. So, uh, team, I, I, I'm glad we've, we've covered a lot of the protest movements and everything that's been happening uh, with them in this hour, uh, because this is not, you can see this is a recurring situation. This is not going away. And as I've been saying to you, uh, there is a, a hidden hand here. There is some behind the scenes that there's definitely coordination of these protests that's that's happening that we're not aware of yet i remember back from my time covering occupy wall street and it was really one of my first important beats as a a young reporter for the blaze or what was technically i think assistant editor for national security but i was reporting a lot on the protests at the time and i i do remember um seeing these activists getting together and holding pre-rally coordination meetings where they would discuss, okay, if we, you know, which is going to be the faction that does stuff that maybe is illegal and gets us arrested? Who's going to be the, who are going to be the ones lying down in the streets? uh, And, and what's going to be our messaging on social media? And this is political theater for the digital age. It can be very powerful though. I mean, I remember it was actually just blocks away from where I was at the time. I was I went to most of the major Occupy Wall Street protests. Uh, I was there the night that they were evicted from Zuccotti Park. I was I was there as they were getting kicked out by the NYPD. Finally, after weeks and weeks of being camped out in that square, uh, I was there for one night when I really thought things were going to get violent with an anti-cop movement that was just vicious and how much they despise the police and how open they were about it. Uh, but I, I remember them discussing what the uh, what the messaging would be, what the tactics would be. This is all they understand the impact of this. This is literally for show. This is so that people will latch on to some of these political ideas. It is uh, it is protest as meme. That's what they're trying to do. That's the ideology at work here. And if they can create a circumstance, and yes, I know, I'm not the, (laughs) you've heard this from others uh, in the past, if they can take pages from the Alinskyite playbook, make protest fun, make it something people want to do, make it almost a social event, so and then they merge that with digital age technology, social media platforms. Remember, Alinsky didn't have Twitter, he didn't have Facebook, he didn't have live streaming. Now that they can do all of those things... 
they have the ability to pick and choose what parts of the protest movement they're going to show. Uh, They can make sure that any adverse reaction they get from Trump supporters, right wingers, any of that is immediately highlighted. They know they'll get a lot of media support and cover for it. So what we are seeing play out here is, I think, Occupy Wall Street for the Trump era. Um, They're calling it Antifa, but Antifa is so associated only with this black bloc element um, that I don't know if that's really the branding yet, but it's there. This is a merger that's happening between Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the Occupy Wall Street, Bernie Sanders, socialists, the Sandernistas. uh, That's all coming together right now. And this is a major political and protest movement across the country that we are seeing. It's this is this is. You know what it is? This is hashtag resistance. That's what it is. This is how it's all coming together. This is hashtag resistance. The violent left, the aggressive left is woke. There's a term that's used on the left for people that are socially conscious and read the read the Huffington Post and are cool. They are woke right now. Buck Sexton back with you now, team. In the next hour, going to do a deep dive on Afghanistan. I think you'll hear more in-depth analysis from me and also from a really excellent expert on uh, South Asia and counterinsurgency against the Taliban in the next hour than you will anywhere else tonight or the next 24 hours. And, of course, Donald Trump giving a speech tonight, major address to the nation on Afghan uh, Afghanistan policy. So uh, th- this is a, a critical issue right now. It- it's time to either end this or get this right. That's where I come down on Afghanistan. We either know what we're doing and we do it and we execute as a country and the White House pushes this forward or else we've tried, we've done our thing, we've given the Afghans the best we can and now it's time to move on to a different phase and they're going to have to do this on their own. It is, it is time for us to come to uh, a resolution here, one way or another. It has been already too long, too much blood and treasure spent in Afghanistan. Um, I, I am favorable to the notion of stabilizing the situation now and making a program for uh, for a, a U.S. presence there that is uh, de minimis. So a very limited U.S. military training and assist presence, and that's it. Uh, unless we want to go the South Korea uh, Germany route and leave a U.S. leave U.S. forces. Keep in mind, in South Korea and Germany, we're not engaged in active hostilities. Though you know, you don't have mortar rounds flying onto the base all the time. So it is different to keep a long term presence in Afghanistan. Uh, but we'll, I'll give you my sense of where all of that is in the next hour. I also didn't want to completely skip over this uh, because. The uh, Navy, I, I don't know much about the Navy. I've just been seeing these stories, but the Navy's been having a very difficult time recently. We've lost sailors, and no one seems to have any good answers. Here's a piece in the Wall Street Journal. Navy to pause operations and review collisions with 10 missing. You've had two major collisions with naval vessels over the last couple of months, and the most recent one left 10 sailors missing. No answers yet from the Navy on this. Something fishy going on here. Something very strange. So any of you who have a background in naval surface warfare or just ships, facebook.com slash and let me know. I've got to dive deeper into this one. I don't have the answers on it, and I, I need to do a little more research. But obviously, I um, feel terrible for what's happened to those sailors and their families. Uh, so we'll revisit that story when we have more. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. 
Buck Sexton back with you all now. Soon after this radio broadcast, President Trump will be giving his speech on the new strategy in Afghanistan. And I wanted to give you my thoughts before the speech. And of course, I'll give you tomorrow some after action analysis uh, or after speech analysis. And I also expect that I will be on Fox News tomorrow morning, 9.15-ish Eastern, 9.10 Eastern, I think, talking about President Trump's speech on Afghanistan. Here is the necessary background to understanding Afghan-U.S. policy at this point, and it's not going well. I've been telling you this for months, but by every metric that we can use to gauge the trajectory of the conflict in Afghanistan, it is getting worse. And as we look now and see uh, that the president is going to be taking a new strategy or taking a new approach to this, we first have to understand the depth of the problem. Uh, We have been involved in Afghanistan for 16 years. Uh, Before we can do anything in Afghanistan, we should at least come to grips with the fact that what has been tried thus far has not achieved the objectives set forth by the International Security Assistance Force, ISAF. And that objective has changed over time. It was a stable, secure, democratic Afghanistan, and then it became an Afghanistan that was able to defend itself against the Taliban and stable. And now it's really more an Afghanistan that just won't descend into chaos and anarchy and become a home for jihadist groups like al-Qaeda and, uh, and others. Uh, the Islamic State has a faction in Afghanistan. Uh, but that moving goalpost, which we have been moving, has yet to be met. And we've been there for over 15 years of combat. And the central government in Kabul in Afghanistan is unable to fully control the east or the south of the country. And over the last 12 months has even lost uh, major cities in the north and is under pressure in the west. So the U.S. is expected to send 4,000 more troops and they would be joining with the roughly 9,000 total ISAF troops that are in country right now. ISAF is our alliance. Uh, there, well, there are 14,000 NATO troops in total. 9,000 of them are American. Uh, But the fighting has been largely done, especially in the last six to 12 months, by the Afghan security forces, and they are getting beat up bad. Afghan army casualties were over 15,000 in 2016. Uh, The U.S. has been providing logistics and intelligence support, but that logistics and intelligence support and Uh, and air power and other areas where we are helpful to the Afghans is not enough uh, because we can't do the fighting for them. And the Taliban is a very resourceful and very resilient, perhaps most importantly, a very resilient enemy. Uh, So the violence metrics against the central government, uh, the violence metrics against Afghanistan have been going up uh, dramatically. And the control metrics, so you've got more casualties that the Afghan National Security Forces are facing now than really at any time with the exception of the Obama era, Obama administration surge of over 100,000 troops into Afghanistan 
really in the middle of President Obama's time in office, uh, we are seeing a huge spike in violent uh, attacks against government forces and and uh, mass casualty attacks, very complex attacks staged in Kabul in what are supposed to be the most secure areas of the capital city. And also in the so that's on the violence metrics. You know, that's how we gauge this. We look at the numbers, because if you're just trying to gauge this by perception, well, then it all depends on who you ask. Right. Oh, well, Afghanistan's made some progress on women's literacy or something in the last few years. Or, you know, there's much cleaner water now in some areas than used to be. Those are good things, but that doesn't really tell you much about the security picture. So violence numbers way up and also control areas of the country that are either contested, meaning the Afghan government and the Taliban are fighting over who's really calling the shots. Those areas are uh, there. There are more of those areas now than there were before. Things have gotten worse. And depending on the estimates, you see really 30 to 40 percent and as many as 50 percent of Afghanistan is either controlled by the Taliban or contested by the Taliban. And the strategy shift that we had, if you can call it that, or really just the uh, the approach that the Obama administration was taking became much more, uh, well, <laughs> much more attuned to the possibility of a deal with the Taliban, uh, which is just never going to come. This idea that we're going to have a negotiated settlement with the Taliban that will be respected by the Taliban is uh, it's just not realistic. I don't know what else to say. I know we'd like to think that there's some way to work through intermediaries or interlocutors, come up with some kind of an agreement to end this now 16th year of war in Afghanistan. Uh, but it does not take into account that idea. It does not take into account whom would be on the other side of that. And it is a jihadist, totalitarian ideology with the Taliban. They are absolute hardliners. They are deeply uh, opposed to not just the liberalization of Afghanistan, uh, but they are they hate the United States for obvious reasons. So if we were to negotiate a deal and then pull out troops, we would be fooling ourselves. There's no deal that can be had with the Taliban. And, and I don't care what the experts say on this or how much they promise that it would. Yeah, there might be a deal for six months or even two years, but then it will fall apart and the Taliban will be ascendant. And that's just the reality that we face there. So now you also have to look at the other regional proxy players that are involved in this. You have Pakistan plays an enormous role with the sanctuary that it provides. And remember, Pakistan has a large Pashtun community. The Taliban is a Pashtun ethnic group. You have many layers of conflict inside Afghanistan right now. Okay, you've got the, uh, the insurgency against the Afghan government, which the Taliban is leading, and it views the Afghan government as a puppet regime, and it views democracy as illegitimate. And so that's the primary fight that we focus on. But you also have a Pashtun, uh, a Pashtun versus other tribes fight. The Pashtun are the pre- predominant, or they, they are the um, ethnic tribal group of the Taliban. But you also have uh, Uzbeks and Tajiks and Hazaras. Uh, th- these are other groups inside of Afghanistan that are fighting with 
the Taliban and fighting with the Pashtun uh, militants in the country. Then you have a fight between rural areas that are very resistant to change and very regressive in their ideology with the more progressive, if you can call it that, uh, the more liberalized uh, urban Afghans who are the ones who are saying that the country needs to move forward and needs to capitalize on its mining deposits and, and have a more uh, modern economy and uh, rule of law and all of that. So there are all these different layers of tension in the country. And then you've got the great game, the major powers that are using Afghanistan as a place for them to work out their own uh, problems with each other, so to speak. The biggest one, the most important one in the region, well, there's really two that are actually very, very important. You have Pakistan and India, uh, that, and they're both squaring off in Afghanistan. The way this works is that Pakistan views Afghanistan as a threat because the, in, because the Indian government uh, tries to cozy up to the Afghan government, which makes the Pakistanis, who are facing a much larger Indian population and much more capable Indian military than what Pakistan has, and of course nukes on both sides, uh, they feel like they now can have an enemy on, on all sides or on, on, on all sides uh, because of India, right? India, they square off and look at each other across uh, across India and Pakistan, across the, uh, the border. Um, but then you add Afghanistan into the mix, and there are major concerns for the Pakistanis about that. And so they use the Taliban and the hardliners and the, you know, the Haqqani network as a means of asserting uh, Pakistani and, yes, Pashtun interests in Afghanistan as a means of preventing India from establishing a kind of forward operating base in Afghanistan against Pakistan. As crazy as I know that may sound, that is what's going on. The other major regional player is uh, Iran, which is on the border of Afghanistan to the west. And in fact, the uh, Tajiks in Afghanistan speak Dari, which is really just a way, really just a, a dialect of Farsi, which is the predominant language of Persians in Iran. And so Iran has cultural, ethnic, linguistic ties to Western Afghanistan and doesn't like, because Iran is a Shia state, doesn't like the Taliban, which is a Sunni, uh, a Sunni Muslim group, but has been willing to play games in the past to undermine U.S. interests in Afghanistan. So you've got Iran as a regional player that is, there are already reports that the Iranians are helping the Taliban and deepening their ties to it. And another one uh, is Russia. You've got to remember that during the Soviet era, all these countries, uh, the stands that are above Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan, they all uh, they were under the Soviet orbit. And so and the Soviet Union, of course, invaded Afghanistan. And we all know about that. Charlie Wilson's war, the Mujahideen. So the Russians know this part of the world well, have very bitter memories of it uh, and are continuing to look for ways to exert their influence, but they also want to try to leave the mess to America and they want it to be our problem. So anyway, we'll continue to uh, look at Afghanistan. I'll have more for you on what I think is going on there and what we can expect from tonight's speech on the other side of this break. Um, BuckSexon.com for news stories throughout the day, by the way. And also, if you're not already, please do follow me on Twitter 
Way to do that is at Buck Sexton. All right, team, we've got an expert joining us now on Afghanistan, Bill Roggio. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy and editor at FDD's Long War Journal, which is a phenomenal resource for those who are interested in what's going on in Afghanistan and other hotspots around the globe. Bill, great to have you. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All right. Before we get into the Trump speech tonight and what Trump policy going forward should be, how bad are things right now in Afghanistan? Walk me through some of the numbers uh, comparatively to what it's been in the past. Sure. I I would say the situation in Afghanistan is as bleak as it's been since the U.S. forces invaded immediately after 9-11 in in late 2001. Um, To put it in perspective, the U.S. military claims that the Taliban controls or contest 40% of Afghanistan's territory. And keep in mind, this is going to be the best-case scenario. The U.S. military is going, to, is going to and is painting the rosiest picture possible, um, because that's what U.S. commanders do. Um, the Afghanistan in, uh, earlier this year claimed it controlled, controlled or contested over 50% and had a presence in uh, probably another 40% of the country. So... Um, and I, by the way, I put a lot of credence into the Taliban's claims, given on what they were claiming they controlled and what they were claiming they didn't control. Uh, the Afghan forces are having their bases overrun. They're being killed and captured in no, probably un- U.S. Command- commanders have said this in unsustainable numbers. So this, it's, it's bleak, to put it mildly. Now, why would a few thousand troops or how would a few thousand troops make a difference given the situation that you've just outlined? I mean, what, what can Trump do now? Assuming that it is three or 4,000, is he buying time for a grand strategy to be put in place? Is this just now the new normal, that it's a stopgap measure that's indefinite? What, what, do you think should, what do you think is happening with the Trump policy? What I think is going on here is uh, I think he is going to put a small number of troops. It's not just the number. It's also how they're used. So if the rules of engagement are relaxed, if the U.S. can use air power to greater effect, um, not be limited on how it can conduct strikes, uh, a small surge in forces can at least arrest the Taliban's gains and perhaps set them, set them back a little bit. And if the U.S. military can show some success in doing this, I think there's an opportunity for additional resources to be brought to bear in Afghanistan, whether that's troops, air, air support, Whatever, and also I think the I also think accompanying the policy, you're probably going to see an increased pressure on Pakistan because without Pakistan, that's the lifeblood of the Taliban, and without Pakistan, the Taliban would be it uh, would be hard pressed to maintain its insurgency and fight as it has. It's Afghanistan, or Pakistan has provided safe haven, material support, you know, uh, to uh, training camps. You, you name it, Pakistan provides it. We're speaking to Bill Roggio, Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy. Those of you who want to know what's going on in the world of counterinsurgency, Long War Journal. Just type it in online on Google. It's a resource for all of you. And Bill's the editor there. Bill, um, you mentioned Pakistan. People are saying put more pressure. This reminds me a little bit, though, when we say, well, let's get China to put more pressure on North Korea. Okay, how and, and how much? Well, I would argue that China really could put pressure on North Korea, and it chooses not to. It chooses to let North Korea be the thorn in the side. The Pakistan, what we have to do is we have to, instead of what we've done over the last 15-plus years, is give money to Pakistan and tell them we're their best friends and hope they change their behavior. It's, it's akin to giving crack to a crack addict and expect them to stop um, being a drug user. That's, what, that's been our policy in a nutshell with Pakistan. We have to cut off the money, and then we have to 
slowly start ramping up the pressure. It you know going from it could be stop you know halting imports, it could be stopping visas or stopping travel from the country, all the way up to listing Pakistan as a state sponsor of terrorism and perhaps uh, declaring India a major ally. That is probably Pakistan's worst nightmare if the U.S. and India became uh, became real partners. And I think you know we haven't tried any of this because we fear that Pakistan, well, it's a nuclear armed state and we they've been an ally in the past, but they haven't. They're responsible for the death of thousands of American soldiers, and I would say directly responsible, as well as a, a failed a failure of U.S. policy in Afghanistan. The Trump administration is coming at Afghanistan now with fresh eyes, and they're putting in place a new strategy. We've only got about a minute, Bill, but I wanted to know from you, what should their desired end state be? What's a realistic win or a realistic end, at least, to the U.S. conflict in Afghanistan? In the short term, it has to be to, to stop the Taliban gains and maybe roll some of them back in the long term if you want to have success. Afghanistan is never going to be the United States. It's probably, you know, never going to be, you know, Somalia. Well, no, that's probably going way too low. Somalia is probably akin to to Afghanistan. However, we um, we have to we're not going to have a, a successful flourishing democracy. A, a, a good end state, a decent end state, would be the Taliban is beaten down to a low level insurgency where it doesn't control territory, where Al Qaeda can't run in training camps as it's done as recently as October 2015 when it was running one of the largest camps the United States has seen since 9/11. So that's you know it's that is what success is going to look like, and us us providing the enablers to get Afghanistan to just fight its enemies. That has to be our primary goal: fight their enemies who are our enemies. Best case scenario, real quick, Bill. We are years away from that, aren't we? Best case we scenario, are, you're, it could be a decade away from that. And so this is the most important thing a U.S. president has to do: is has to explain it to the American public, and not just once, but has to do it continually. Bill Roggio, Foundation of Defense of Democracies. Check out Long. World Journal. Bill, thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Always a pleasure to join you. Team, hitting a break here. We'll be right back. Stay with me.
He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. The eclipse was today, everybody. Buck Sexton back with you now. I know there hasn't been an eclipse, a full eclipse in this country since 1918. And so today was a day of a, a lot of celebration of the Earth. Uh, well, of the, of the sun being temporarily blocked by the moon and then casting a shadow on the earth. Yeah, it was. I wish I knew enough about astrology to have some interesting things to say about it. Uh, my father is actually, oddly enough, uh, quite knowledgeable about astrology. In, in retrospect, I probably should have uh, had him come on the show as a guest. Uh, and I was going to say the next time there's an eclipse, I will. But that won't be for 100 years, so we might not be around for that one. Uh, but perhaps another time when there is a major solar event of some kind, I'll have my dad, who is just, as a, as a hobby, is very knowledgeable about astrology, on the show to uh, shed some light on these things. Or shed some shadow, if you will. No, it was, it was weak. The news anchor puns today and the, the plays uh, the plays on words or play on words uh, that were going on were pretty pretty uh, out pretty uh, outrageous I, I was walking around the streets in New York on my way into Fox today I did a few uh, Fox hits and Fox business uh, with the exceptional and uh, and brilliant Trish Regan and I was on the street and I saw people and they're all standing and looking and I could tell there was this sense of you know, man, we should be. This should be so awesome, right? Like there was this. It reminded me of when people came out of Avatar in 3D, and they were like, "Meh, it wasn't really as great as everybody said it was." Now there was some cloud cover here in New York City, and so perhaps the eclipse wasn't uh, quite as fantastic as as everybody thought it would be. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm first of all, I, I am very protective of my vision. Uh, for those of you who are curious, I actually don't even do radio with headphones on. I do radio with an earpiece just in my right ear because it's very easy to, over time, do damage to your hearing in this business. And I got used to a right earpiece for TV purposes, and I just decided to stay with it. So a lot of people have uh, they have earphones in so they can hear themselves back. They have or headphones rather so they can hear themselves back. And there's even some very special, high-end, expensive, radio-specific headphones. I just have, I, I use like the same earpiece that you use for your iPhone in my ear during radio. Uh, I can't hear myself back. I don't feel the need to. I just talk to you like I'm talking to friends or if I'm sitting around with my family, I don't listen to myself back the way that is, is done in traditional radio. Part of that, though, is also I just don't want to damage my hearing, and I am very protective of my sight. And so the notion that I would look at the sun and in some way even even put out any chance of damaging my vision, even just a little bit, maybe if it was maybe it wouldn't even matter for 50 years, uh, assuming I make it another 50 years. Let's hope so. Knock on wood. There's just no chance whatsoever that I would. Um, anyway. Uh, yeah. So. Oh, oh, I meant to tell you why else am I talking about the eclipse other than people who were looking up at the sun, uh, there was this article. You, you can't make this stuff up. It reminds me of the movie PCU when there's this group walking around that is like the, the militant 
African-American students on campus, uh, you know, who, who are, are talking about oppression and, you know, the, the white, uh, white, white oppression and everything and, and how, yeah, the, the, the guys, uh, the more militant students on campus say that the, the, the fax machine is white and the chalk is white and it's a white devil's conspiracy. It's from this 1994 movie PCU. Which I highly recommend to those of you who have not seen it. By the way, it's it's a movie that you um, you, you definitely in, in the current context of everything that's going on. I think you'd really appreciate how PCU is. Uh, it's it's telling the the stories of our of our time when it comes to political correctness. Anyway, um, but yeah, it, uh, and then he goes from the militant black students on campus yelling that it's a white devil conspiracy. Uh, there's this preppy student running around with a side part and a blue blazer on and boat shoes. So there's that. And then he runs into the, the vegan, the militant vegans, and they're yelling, meat tosser! And so, but the, the parody, of course, is that there was a period in the 90s and people were saying everything is racist, right? Everything is racist. And it, and it was true in the sense that people were pushing racism too much as a charge for it to even have meaning but here's what's written in the Atlantic. I, you, you, cannot, you cannot make this stuff up, folks. Uh, this is about the eclipse. And the shorthand version of this is the eclipse is racist. Quote, American blackout, a tour of the solar eclipse's path, reveals a nation that fought to maintain a different sort of totality. Totality is everything, say those who chase solar eclipses. When the moon fully obscures the sun and casts its shadow on Earth, the result is like nothing you've seen before, not even a partial eclipse. Uh, In this path of totality, night comes suddenly, and one can see the shape of the moon as a circle darker than black, marked by the faint backlight of the sun's corona. On August 21st, today, 2017, a total solar eclipse will arrive mid-morning on the coast, etc., etc. It has been dubbed the Great American Eclipse, and along most of its path, there live almost no black people. This is a quote, I'm quoting from the Atlantic here. Presumably, this is not explained by the implicit bias of the solar system. It is a matter of population density, and more specifically geographic variations... Uh, in population density by race for which the sun and the moon cannot be held responsible. Still, an eclipse chaser is always tempted to believe that the skies are relaying a message. At a moment of deep disagreement about the nation's best path forward, here comes a giant round shadow drawing a line either to cut the country in two or to unite it as one. The Great American Eclipse may or may not tell us anything about our future, but its peculiar path could remind us of something about our past, what it was we meant what it was we meant to be doing and what we actually did along the way. Um, that's that I'm just reading what it says. And if it seemed we need no reminding consider this uh, as uh, as the eclipse approaches the temperatures will fall and birds will roost and then suddenly the lights will go out. Uh, and then it goes on. Oregon, where this begins, is almost entirely white. The 10% or so of state residents who do not identify as white are predominantly Latino, American Indian, Alaskan, or Asian. There are very few black Oregonians. 
Uh, I mean, this is a subheading from this. The astronomers tell us where lies the path of totality. The census tell us where live, uh, where live the people and what colors they are. I, I don't even know. I, I mean, I don't even know what to tell you. Uh, this is trying to make a point about racism through the eclipse. I mean, you've got to read this thing to really see where it goes here in terms of the piece. Uh, Here's, let me just give you the finish. This is how it finishes. The great American eclipse illuminates or darkens a land still segregated, a land still in search of equality, a land of people still trying to dominate each other. Uh, When the lovely glow of a backlight fades, history is relentless just one damn fact after another, one damning fact after another. America is a nation with debts that no honest man can pay. Uh, I, you know, the eclipse is the eclipse is political now. Forget about nothing is sacred. Nothing is beyond politics. Just like in PCU in 1994, the chalk is white. The fax machine is white. It's a white devil's conspiracy. That's that's a quote from the movie, and they're trying to mock. A very uh, bizarre but somewhat uh, real mindset that exists among some hardline leftists that everything is a racial conspiracy. And here you've got a piece just published in The Atlantic. It's a really bad piece, by the way. It's just bad writing. It's just not a quality piece. But you see, this is part of what we see with writing on race. Any issue that touches on race has to be handled differently. Right. Anything that is an analysis of of racism in America, you better elevate it, assuming that it talks about how racist we are. I mean, if you're going to go in the other direction, then, of course, the opposite rules apply. It has to be censored. It has to be shut down, shouted down, maybe even violent protests to stop it, maybe even putting explosives on a statue to make a point. Right. That's what happens in this country now. Uh, But if you're writing on race and you're trying to say that the country is deeply racist, is beset by racism, and you can even go so far as to make a piece uh, or to write a piece on how the eclipse is illuminating racism in America and there are only white people in the major pathway of the eclipse. Guys, it's nothing is too crazy anymore for the left, right? They are they have gone fully delusional. Uh, they have so disconnected from reality and, and the abandonment of rationality and first principles that is animating much of progressive thought these days is evident even in a piece on the solar eclipse. Uh, th- this is it was amazing. I'm trying to who is the author of this? Just if you want to look it up, we'll, we'll put it up on bucksexton.com. Alice Ristroff. Uh, in the Atlantic, American blackout, a tour of the solar eclipse's path reveals a nation that fought to maintain a different sort of totality. Uh, and it's it's amazing. You know, th- this really is be- you can't make fun of it. It's beyond it is beyond parody. It is a completely uh, nonsensical analysis of astronomy, really, and, and, and of the planets and astrophysics and. Uh, it is it is really amazing. Now, now it is considered to be on the cutting edge to try to use a solar eclipse to make political points about race in America. It's just nonsense. It really reminds me of the parody articles that have gotten published recently. The one in particular, uh, 
that was called that parody article, The Penis as Social Construct, that was published in a peer-reviewed journal. This is almost as farcical as that. And that was intended to be farcical. Um, I want to just close with some nice thoughts about uh, seeing some old friends over the weekend and, and uh, what, what is necessary for us all these days, which is taking a moment, taking a breather and not just focusing on what is political and what is uh, contested right now in our debates and discussions. Uh, so I'll just share some closing. Oh, by the way, bucksexon.com slash store. T-shirts, T-shirts. Check them out. Hats, too. Buck Sexton back with the team here in the Freedom Hut. I've moved into a new place, as I've been telling you, and it's been a lot of fun, a lot of work. Uh, I haven't tried to set up uh, what I think could be called a, a reasonably adult home where you have more than one room well really ever uh this is i I guess when i was in dc i actually i lived in a one-bedroom apartment although i had a a two-bedroom apartment i had a roommate so i had i had a living room and a couch but here in new york city if you're a guy on his own unmarried uh, and you have a one-bedroom apartment you are you are shelling out a lot of cash so i've been living in a one-room apartment for a long time so now i have an actual uh, living space area that doesn't just have a big bed in the middle of it. I have a place for a couch and I've been setting up uh, some home decor. I've gone with a, uh, a nice theme for the, a nice sort of almost beach theme for the bedroom, which I'm very pleased with. And I'm getting all settled. I have been doing more cooking recently than ever before. I will say that Molly made me, and if you, by the way, if you're looking for something to make, this was incredible. She made pulled chicken zucchini enchiladas for me over the weekend. I was going to post it up on social media, on Instagram, but it didn't really, or on facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, which you should be following everybody. Uh, But the visual of this dish didn't do it justice. It was among the most delicious uh, Mexican cuisine I've ever had. Now, Molly is half Mexican, so she does literally have uh, Mexican cooking, as she would say, in her blood. Her mother is a fantastic Mexican uh, cuisine cook and comes from a, a Mexican background. Uh, so, you know, Molly made me this amazing food over the weekend. I've been cook, And I know, by the way, the enchiladas made with zucchini is great. It means that it's really low. It's, it's a lo- really low-carb dish. And you replace the flour or corn tortilla you don't even know the difference. I'm telling you, it's all about the sauce and the pulled chicken and the zucchini actually absorbs them pretty well if you do it properly. Uh, it, was, it was phenomenal. I, I couldn't compliment Molly enough on it. In fact, she made so much or she made extra so that she could take some into work. And I had to apologize because I, I snuck some while she was away. I know I was like the kid who was sneaking into the cookie jar, but I had a little bit of her pulled chicken zucchini enchiladas leftovers that were meant for her today in the office. I left some for her, but I had like a little bit of what was going to be taken to the office. It was so good. Sometimes I steal a little food. She knows better than to get in between me and a chocolate bar too, because need need my chocolate fix. Uh, but I've been cooking more, been doing a lot more of that. And yesterday I finally took a, a break to see some friends. And those of you who have been listening to me for a while and uh, been a part of my career, because everybody who watches, listens, downloads, reads, and, and, and follows my work is, is a part of my career. And, and I have to, I can't thank you all enough for that. I took a moment though yesterday to see some old friends, friends that, uh, some of you will no doubt recall. I had brunch 
which is a, a thing here that everybody does pretty much in New York City. Everybody brunches. So I know in some parts of the country, they're like, isn't that just lunch, but trying to sound fancy? We did brunch. And I saw my old friends, uh, Brandon Webb and Tara Setmayer. Tara is now an ABC. Well, let me start with Brandon. Brandon, of course, is a guest on the show. I think we had him even last week. Good buddy of mine, former Navy SEAL sniper. Great to catch up with him. And I, we were talking about how we met on the set of Real News uh, at The Blaze years ago. That's, and since then, we've become very good friends. Brandon and I hang out. Uh, regularly. Uh, we hang out on the weekends. He's got an awesome new dog named Ace. It's an Australian Shepherd. So he's got a puppy too. I mean, you know, so the guy's got, he's got great stories and a puppy, as you can imagine. The ladies love him. Um, and then uh, Tara Setmayer, who was my old buddy at the Real News table uh, there with me, a staunch conservative. She's now over at ABC doing political analysis uh, for them and also sometimes appears on, on CNN. And it was just great to catch up with Tara and, and hang out with her a bit. And, you know, for those of you who are Tara fans from the Real News, Tara Setmayer fans from the Real News days, she's doing great. Uh, she's she's happy. Career's going well. And she's just doing her thing. And she's she's a big talent. I think we're going to see uh, a very she has a, she's got a, a bright and, and I think powerful future in, in the media business, uh, as does Brandon. Brandon's really more on the entrepreneur side than anything else. He's actually building media businesses. But. Uh, more on that perhaps later. But it was just great to catch up with those friends. And I appreciated that those of you who saw some of the photos I posted realized that these are all from the Blaze days. These are some of my, they've become some of my close friends uh, offset as well. Uh, thank you, as always, team, for joining. I'm glad that uh, despite the eclipse, the world has not ended and, you know, the, the seas have not boiled over. So that's good news. I'm going to have a lot to talk about tomorrow. The president's speech on Afghanistan. I'm going to give you a breakdown of what I think uh, comes, what, what, what I think is coming out of that, plus the big Phoenix political rally he's planning. Things could get really out of hand there. We'll see. Um, we've got that and a lot more coming up tomorrow. So uh, be sure to download the podcast, uh, share it with friends, Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Please subscribe. See you tomorrow. Shields high.